This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in Amsterdam this evening alongside Alex Steele, who is still in New York. Uh, Alex, it's been a, a reversal today. We're seeing equity markets coming under significant pressure. You've got European markets down reasonably hard, but that selling has continued into the afternoon session over with you. The Nasdaq's down now by 1.7%. You've got the S&P down by 1.27%. Uh, this is data comes through strong in the United States in the form of the ISM. Plus, we get Mary Daly, the San Francisco Fed president. I have to say, sounding fairly hawkish. Mm -hmm. The real change, I think, though, is in the dollar. You're seeing a strong dollar again. The British pound back down to 112.69, down by nearly 2% on the cable rate. Yeah, and uh, with Mary Daly in particular, uh, she acknowledged the fact that there could be instability issues or global issues with uh, the fact that the Fed is hiking so aggressively, but that they have their mandate and that 2% mandate. And she definitely threw cold water in any kind of cuts uh, coming in 2023. Also want to mention OPEC, um, lots of different things happening there. We're going to break it down throughout the hour as well. But net-net, OPEC plus cutting production, U.S. doesn't like it. And Russia seems to be pretty aggressive in, in shuttering in production if there's going to be an oil price cap from the G7 nations. The other thing we should probably mention as well is what is happening in Birmingham, wrapping up the Conservative Party conference there. Liz Truss's speech today, I thought a bit of a non-event. Uh, she didn't really move the market. I know the pound is down today, but I think everything is down today against the dollar. I'm not sure she had much of an impact. Maybe that's a good thing. We'll go to Birmingham uh, in a few minutes trying, time to get an update on what is, what is happening. Before we do that... Let's get an update on what is happening around the world. Here with the details there, Charlie Pella. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Commuters across Britain have been hit by another day of disruption after rail workers went on strike at the end of the Conservatives' tumultuous party conference. Train drivers from the Aslef Union walked out today, affecting 13 train companies and services, including Avanti West Coast, LNER, and the London Overground. OPEC Plus has agreed to cut its collective output put limit by 2 million barrels a day, stoking tensions with the U.S. as the cartel seeks to halt a slide in oil prices caused by the weakening global economy. It is the biggest reduction by the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries and its allies since 2020, but will have a smaller impact on global supply than the headline numbers suggest. Several member companies or uh, countries are already pumping well below their quotas, meaning they would already be in compliance with their new limits without having to reduce production. Brent crude, the global benchmark, up today by about 2.3%. Tesco has frozen prices on 1,000 products until next year to maintain its leading market share in the UK amid intense competition from discount grocers Aldi and others. Britain's biggest grocer reported better-than-expected sales and only slightly reduced its profit guidance for the fiscal year. As it works to keep prices low, an increase is paid to blunt the impact of inflation on consumers and employees. That is the latest from the news desk. Uh, back now to Guy Johnson in Amsterdam. Guy, a reminder, you are on a work trip in Amsterdam. Charlie, I've been to an aviation conference. I've been, I, this is what you love as well. I've I love airports. I've been to airline CEOs. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, 
I'm not a, uh, yeah, I'm going to find out whether I love an airport tomorrow. Right. Alex doesn't really care about this, but I've got to go through Skipple Airport tomorrow morning, and I'm, I'm slightly concerned. But well, Alex, can we just talk Alex you through like wh- why I should care about this again? Not that I don't love play by play of guy traveling. That is fun <laughs> for me. I'm an audience for that. <laughs> uh, precisely, precisely. So I checked on the website. Do you know, I, they're telling you to turn up four hours before the flight. Yeah, but they always four say hours. stuff like that. Who cares? No, no uh, one does yeah, know, that. No, skip all you show up hours. six hours before the flight lately. Okay, that's just crazy. I, it, it is nuts. But are you really going to do that? Anyway. You're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do two hours. If I miss my flight, I'm going to rebook it on something else. But well, anyway, I, I, it's at nine o'clock tomorrow morning, which is eight o'clock UK time. So I've got to be there at six a.m. Uh, it's it's yeah. It's a, a guy, very briefly, I saw you talking to a KLM executive on Bloomberg Television yep. earlier today. What was said, if anything, about trying to reduce the hassle for passengers trying to leave Schiphol? Well, uh, Charlie, funny you should mention that. Let's find out. She. Th- this is uh, precisely. Yeah. This is this is the point I was trying to get to. Uh, you with the hair, yeah. We've done the hair. Now we can move on. Um, <laughs> this is this is the point. Basically, Marion Rittler is the new CEO of KLM. She's she's about to to be a hundred days in office. She is really annoyed with with Schiphol Airport, and she made that very clear to me a little earlier on. Take a listen. Schiphol Airport is a very, very good brand in the world, like KLM is. And we together built a good reputation for the hub and spoke model we have for transferring and connecting people and businesses. And so it's it's such a waste that this is happening today. I mean, the the labor shortages, it's it's all over. It's in the Netherlands, it's in Europe. We see it in restaurants, in bars, at the airport. But uh, uh, we need to solve it, and I think we can solve it, and we urge the airport to solve it soon. Are they, are they a friend or a foe? Are they working with you, or are they? We do you feel like they're working work against you? We work in a good relationship, but we agree or disagree on some items, and on this item we think they could do much better than they did so far. We are going to see capacity constraints as a result of the staff shortages for a while, but longer term... The Dutch government, the government of the Netherlands, is also going to impose some quite severe restrictions on aircraft movements at Schiphol. We are going to see you basically going back to 2014 levels uh, of aircraft movements. As you think about what your plan is going to look like, how do you, how do you grow an airline when you are capacity constrained? Yeah, well, I think the question is different. I think, okay. uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but I think the, <laughs> the, question. the question is really different because we take responsibility also for sustainability and we think we need to develop a good airport in relation with all the residents around us, uh, with the sustainability goals, with the customer demand, and we have an alternative. So we offer that alternative to the government. We want to uh, Co- coordinate with them, cooperate with them to develop that. Marianne Rittle, the, the new CEO of KLM. Alex, what the Dutch government is proposing is that it puts a permanent cap on the number of aircraft that are flying in and out of Schiphol Airport, which is a huge airport here in the Netherlands. And the reason they're doing that, CO2 and noise. And if other airports replicate this, basically you could see Europe not seeing any any growth in the aviation sector going forward, which is a huge blow. But it may be something that ends up happening as we see the industry really struggling to make its sustainability goals stick. That's Isn't that kind of crazy? Like, isn't that 
sort of shooting your foot to spite your face or shooting your face to spite your foot, whatever that metaphor is. I mean, how can you capacity constrain faces? faces? How do you constrain an airline that's going to actually need revenue and need money in order to make the shift uh, to sustainable aviation fuel, which is expensive, and they have to buy new planes at some point also? Like, how can you do that? Well, they're basically saying from a societal point of view, we, we don't need it anymore. I, so, so what is interesting about Schiphol is that it's a hub and spoke model. So a lot of people fly in here, don't stay in the Netherlands and then fly out again. Does the does that benefit the Netherlands other than the jobs around Schiphol Airport? What's mm-hmm. the benefit there for the for the, for the industry here? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the question. That I think increasingly a lot of airports are going to be forced to ask themselves. So what is that? What is my like benefit air- to society rather than just providing jobs? What about? And I think air- it's going to be a really interesting then? challenge for the European aviation sector as it thinks about how it's going to manage this because the pressure is going to get greater and greater and greater. Can I can I talk now? We have 30 seconds. Um, But then how do you do it then? Like, are people getting different places in different ways? Like, is that the idea when you're saying you don't need the airport anymore? He's not going to talk. He's not talking. He's not there. All right, fine. I'll I'll, I'll just keep talking. This is good. We do this a lot in breaks. We we complain about each other talking too much, so I'll just take it from here. Uh, All right, coming up, we're going to talk more about the Tory party conference, what we learned from Liz Truss today, and, and how people feel. The polls are not that good for her right now. We'll break it down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. We gather at a vital time for the United Kingdom. These are stormy days. In these tough times, we need to step up. I'm determined to get Britain moving, to get us through the tempest, and to put us on a stronger footing as a nation. That was Liz Truss, UK Prime Minister, um, trying to rally members of her party uh, at the Tory party conference that wrapped up on its final day in Birmingham. Um, James Wilcock has been there the last few days. We love touching base with him on the ground. Um, I should point out that, you know, as this was unfolding, the cable rate was down another 2% today. I understand that part of that's going to be the dollar, but clearly there hasn't been the kind of recalibration and investor confidence in the UK government than that the UK government would probably want to see at this point. Uh, James joins us now. Hey, James, um, what was the takeaway from Liz Truss's speech? What were people talking about? I think the takeaway was that she survives to fight another day. She was allowed to go back to Westminster and try and get through this legislative agenda. But we still don't know what really is on that legislative agenda. Like, what we saw today, Alex, was a window into Liz Truss's reality. If we lived in her world, we would have, you know, less regulation, less taxes. We'd have a great NHS with doctor's appointments every two weeks for anyone who wants to go. We'd have less legal immigration and an iron grip on public spending. She also sees, like, kind of an attack on militant unions, I quote, Brexit deniers, people who go on Twitter in their South London houses and go to a BBC studio by taxi. She calls it this anti-growth coalition. That came up a lot. But the problem is, is that the opposing Labour Party, who are doubling them in the polls, but in some polls, comrades on Monday, for example, they, their keynote speech was growth, growth and growth last week, Wednesday. So in some ways, this was Liz Truss's kind of 
her version of the world. So now we get to see if reality it chimes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, will it? And I say that because I was looking at a YouGov poll, I think it was, and that just 14% of Britons now feel have a favorable impression of trust down from 26% two weeks ago. And I appreciate that it's all of the UK versus just the Tory party, but 14%? Well, I mean, it's always worth saying polls are a temperature check, right? We have months to go, possibly even years before the next general election. It, last one was in 2019. They have to have a maximum of five years for calling another one. It could all still change, and people are going to be angry about their bills. Like, it's natural for that kind of thing to happen. I think the question will be is when we get back to Westminster, we will start to realize quite how much support of her own party this trust really has. Because as I was telling you, I think yesterday, one of the key things about this conference hasn't been who's arrived there to support Liz, but who hasn't shown up. The no-shows, the naysayers, the quiet rebels. The quiet rebels. That feels ominous. Okay, so can you walk me through the TikTok then of what we can expect from Liz Trust now? Well, I mean, although they'll be back in Westminster next week, already we're hearing Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng has called in the heads of the UK's largest retail bank for a meeting tomorrow to discuss the turbulence in the mortgage market. And on the Friday, the OBR are giving preliminary forecasts for where the UK is. Now, the big one isn't expected until later. Kwarteng has said November 23rd. That's the day he expects to have all the economic policy ready to go that he's been waiting to announce and markets have been itching to hear about. But it will be quite like the market will be very keen to hear about if it's moved up sooner. The Bank of England meet November 3rd, and a lot of the MPs I've been talking to, including the very important chairman of the Treasury Committee, Mel Stride, mm-hmm. want to know what is going to be announced before we get to that Bank of England decision in early October, November. Yeah, that doesn't. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and I also sort of and the timetable that's going to be moved up to like, do we get it on, on November 23rd? Do we get it earlier? And then what the response of that uh, is going to be at the same time? Um, do you think the, is the overwhelming feeling that Quasi Quartang keeps his job and that the connection that Liz Truss is saying that the two of them have and how they back each other up is real? It all comes down to what these MPs say, right? I mean, we saw the intervention by Michael Gove and Grant Shapps senior Tories of the party, former government ministers. Gove has been at the top of government in cabinet for 12 years, the entire time he served in power. He said on Sunday night and Monday that these taxes weren't conservative. Sure enough, they went by the Monday. So it's quasi quite conservative, Alex. That's the question they'll have to answer when they're back in Westminster. And it is said to be fractious and free bar. Words that, you know, don't happen in the UK, do they? No, this is a, it's going to be totally fascinating. James, your reporting has been so great. Super spot on. Uh, James Wilcock joining us from the Tory Party Conference. Coming up, we're turning the light on OPEC Plus and oil. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in Amsterdam. So let's get to the other big news of the day. And that's what happened with OPEC. So the backstory. OPEC Plus had ministers meeting in Vienna for the first time in two years, and they delivered some serious headlines. They agreed to collectively cut its output by 2 million barrels of oil a day. Now, even the Saudi oil minister says the real size of its cut is about 1 to 1.1 million barrels of oil a day. I say real because there is a paper cut in that some members, like Russia, for example, 
weren't producing at the quota that they had already promised. Therefore, cutting to the level where they're already producing is, in essence, a paper cut. But a real cut of one million barrels of oil a day is quite substantial. Uh, oil popped higher to about $93 a barrel. You know who's not going to like that? The U.S. is not going to like that. And already you had a statement from the White House uh, saying that they will continue with SPR releases as appropriate. That is oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which they already tapped in order to lower gasoline prices. And they're running out of stuff there as well. In addition to that, they mentioned that they would consult Congress on additional tools and authorities to reduce OPEC's control over energy prices. Uh, there is a NOPEC bill that's always sort of floating around Congress uh, to see if there is a way to reduce the influence of the cartel on prices and put some restrictions on them in terms of what they're able to do and sell uh, into the U.S. Now, the third thing to pay attention to is Alexander Novak. So he was interviewed exclusively by Bloomberg News. And there's a lot of interesting things happening here. Let me walk you through it. On the one hand, you have potential oil price caps coming from G7 nations. And the idea is that you'd have Russia forced to sell oil for cheaper on the market because they desperately need the revenue. Hence, oil would still flow despite any price caps. If you were able to buy oil below those price caps, you could move it. You could get the tanker insurance, you can get the shipping insurance, and all is well. If you uh, if you pay for oil above the price cap, well, then you're not able to move it and you don't get the insurance. Novak really pushed back on that point, uh, talking about that it would materially impact their oil production and they wouldn't sell oil uh, to those G7 nations that prescribe to the price cap. So there are lots of moving parts to this. It was definitely an explosive meeting. Um, Guy, I know I'm an oil nerd. I appreciate that. But even you You can't deny that this was very significant. Uh, I think the Novak stuff is hugely significant. I think basically if the Russians are prepared to withdraw their crude from the market because of this this cap on prices, I think that could be a that could be a huge blow to the global markets. And I don't think that's priced yet. Oh no. But not- I do wonder whether I do wonder whether this could also engender some fragility in the OPEC plus agreement, which which in theory has now been just re up for a, for a, for another period. But I do wonder whether or not if if Russia unilaterally withdraws oil from the market, whether that is something that OPEC would support. Um, yes, I'm. 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 I'm just thinking. Yes, they would how, support it. Well, no, no. I'm just thinking. I'm. I'm. I'm trying to register what that would then mean all of a sudden if demand, say, popped back up. Like if China popped back into the market, how that would then affect that particular dynamic? Because then, in essence, the Saudis really might need Russia um, to some extent. Let's talk to somebody who's also an oil nerd. Let's go to Julian Lee, Bloomberg Opinion. Um, Julian, we were talking about the different elements here about Novak and the oil price cap um, and Russia saying, we're not going to sell to you. We're going to have to shut in production if you guys prescribe to an oil price cap. What did you make of that? Um, I think that's, you know, this is what the Russians have been saying all along. I didn't really take that as being anything new. Um, President Putin said at the, um, the a summit a couple of months ago uh, that Russia wouldn't sell oil under capped prices and, and wouldn't sell oil to any country that sought to cap the price. Um, they will obviously try to sell that oil elsewhere to countries like 
perhaps China and India uh, that, that aren't intending to, to take up this, this price cap policy, um, and what oil they can't sell there, then they have nothing else to do with it. So they have to keep it in the ground. So what does that mean in terms of managing prices from an OPEC plus point of view? Um, I think that, that OPEC plus will um, continue to, to take its, its sort of very cautious approach to adding supply to the market. Uh, it's very unclear uh, what they will do in the event uh, that there is a big loss of Russian supply. For example, I think they're in a very difficult position because Russia is clearly a very important ally as part of the OPEC plus group. Uh, so it's, it's difficult for them to be seen to step in and, and take up um, markets that, that Russia is unwilling or unable to supply. Um, and at the same time, uh, perhaps it, it's, you know, it's going to get get uncomfortable for them if, if prices uh, do spike uh, mm -hmm. as a result of these, these EU sanctions. And, and I think that it was quite noticeable that um, the, the Saudi energy minister and others really sidestepped this question of, of what they would do uh, in that kind of a situation. I mean, they were asked specifically um, how they would respond because the, the, the price targets that they've put in place now um, Will are, are set as much as anything is is set in OPEC plus terms until not the end of this year but the end of next year. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, when asked how they would respond if, if for example, Chinese demand came back, um, it was you know I think what you'd expect that um, you know ministers are only a phone call away from each other, and if mm -hmm. we need to to meet again before then, um, we can do so very quickly. So, well, well to that point. Um Christian Malik of J.P. Morgan was just talking to me about how he thinks that the Saudis are just going to keep producing and just stick it all in storage in case, as you mentioned, Chinese demand comes back. And I'm assuming dot 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 in case Russian production uh, gets shut in, there'll be that backstop. Uh, that is that is certainly a possibility. Um I mean, we, we are or we have seen, a, a, you know, a rundown in, in inventories in the oil consuming countries over the last nine to 12 months. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we will see a build up in, in inventories in some of the producing countries that have the capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could definitely, definitely probably do that. Um, super interesting dynamics playing out there. Julian Lee, thank you very much. We appreciate your patience. Julian Lee from Bloomberg My Opinion. Uh, all right. Coming up next, our exclusive interview with Mary Daly, the San Francisco Fed. Just doubling down on her hawkishness. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in Amsterdam. Um, let's get a quick check in here on U.S. markets. So stocks sinking, a real reversal of the very dramatic rally that we've had in a couple uh, in the past two days. Uh, yields really popping higher, particularly in the belly and at the 10-year, uh, and the dollar moving higher as well. Part of it was just, you know, the reversal of what we've seen the last couple of days. The other part was some strong economic data that we got in the U.S. ADP came in pretty strong. ISM services came in pretty strong. Um, that means more rate hikes. That means weaker equities in theory. We'll get to more of that in just a moment. Let's get some headlines here with Charlie Pop. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Premier Liz Truss today sought to rally despondent members of her ruling conservatives, pledging to stay the course after a bruising few days in which she U-turned 
turned on a flagship tax cut, and members of her own cabinet openly questioned her plans. In a closing speech to her party's conference in Birmingham today, Truss said, wherever there is change, there is disruption. And she said she's determined to get Britain moving, to get us through the tempest, and to put us on stronger footing. Truss, meanwhile, is backing the Bank of England's authority to set interest rates independently, dropping previous mentions of a review into the central bank's policymaking. Executives from UK lenders, including Barclays and NatWest, are expected to meet with the Chancellor of the Exchequer tomorrow. This, according to Sky News, that meeting to discuss the mortgage market, which has seen some borrowing costs climb to their highest level in almost 14 years. Virgin Atlantic Airways pulling out of Hong Kong for good, canceling flights and is closing its offices in the Asian financial hub, ending a 30-year history in the city. The UK airline says several factors contributed to its decision, including on the basis of Russian airspace remaining closed, that Heathrow to Hong Kong flight times would be at least one hour longer. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. So, Guy, the question we were kind of talking about and kicking around today is the whole idea of financial stability versus the real economy. That to get the rates to where the real economy needs it means financial stability rates are different. And there's a spread. So maybe the financial stability only needs a certain amount of Fed hikes versus the real economy needs another amount of Fed hikes. And that's really, I think, what a lot of the market participants are grappling with. Yeah, you've got financial stability concerns beginning to bubble up, the latest Mm -hmm. being the Bank of England. Do central banks need to pay attention to the stability of the financial system at the expense of the real economy? That's what we're really talking about here. And it's a massive challenge. They have have a responsibility for financial stability. But I think the markets are assuming now that financial stability will take precedence. And it's going to be interesting to see whether it plays out that way. And in terms of some Fed officials, that ain't the case. Um, Mike McKee sat down with Mary Daly, the San Francisco Fed president, and started with this and said, look, is the Fed going to change its rate path because of markets? We are resolute at raising the interest rate into restrictive territory so that we can bring inflation down, which is causing millions of Americans to suffer real pain, and everyone's experiencing it. It's also very damaging to the economy to have this level of inflation, so we're committed to bringing it down and staying the course until we're well and truly done. Well, when uh, we were speaking before the interview, you said that the futures market hump shape, the idea that you go up and then you come back down next year, is wrong. Yeah, I don't see that happening at all. I see us as raising to a level that we believe is restrictive enough to bring inflation down and then holding it there until we see inflation truly get close to 2% and, and demonstrate that price stability is restored. Well, what is that level that's restrictive enough? Well, right now, we've just got the rate up to a point where it's a little bit restrictive, potentially, or just at neutral. And so I would see more policy adjustments as required to restrain the economy sufficiently. Remember, this is all about bringing demand, which is very strong, back in line with supply, and bringing inflation down. So I do see more rate increases as necessary. But of course, we're consistently data dependent, and you know, we'll continue to do that. Well, I know you tell me because you're data dependent, you haven't made a decision about what you want to do on November 2nd. That's correct. But what's more important right now, the speed at which you get to the restrictive level or the length of time you leave it there? To my mind, the length of time we leave it there is increasingly important because that's really going to be the thing that brings inflation, not just coming down, but achieving that 2% average inflation target that we've set. 
Well, how do you see the pace, uh, the path of inflation now? Some argue that with supply chains normalizing, uh, energy prices down, we'll see CPI inflation collapse fairly quickly. Others say it's going to be stubborn and be there for much longer than maybe the Fed and others anticipate. Well, you really have outlined the case for data dependence because the data will tell us. What I see is that inflation will release some of the pressure we've seen this year, but probably end next year at closer to 3% than 2%. And then it will take another year to fully get it back down to our 2% target. Now, if we get better numbers than that, well, that's terrific. But we have to be prepared for inflation to be a little more persistent because it has been a little more persistent than I think most people expected so far. That was Mary Daly of the San Francisco Fed uh, joining Michael McKee, who joins us now in the studio. Uh, Mike, if we were looking for any kind of idea that the Fed, you know, is worried about financial stability, that interview wasn't it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We talked at length um, on and off the air about financial stability. And her view is that the Fed is very concerned with it. They're keeping an eye on it. They don't know what they don't know, which was um, yeah. kind of the LDI problem in the in the UK. Now you can argue they should have known, uh, and there are people in the mortgage industry who said that um, the pension industry rather that said they told the Bank of England about it. But uh, as far as Daly is concerned, she doesn't see anything that's starting to break any financial stability problem, and the idea that you as an investor lose money because your stock went down is not financial instability. Do I want to be listening to Mary Daly about this or do I want to be listening to John Williams? I, I, I have huge respect for Mary Daly, but is she the right person to be talking to about financial stability? Well, she studied it and she's a member of the Open Market Committee, so she's responsible as the San Francisco Fed Bank president for a lot of banks in the West. And so she she does keep a, a pretty close eye on it. Obviously, you would want to know what the New York Fed is seeing because they have a markets group that monitors the markets every day. But Williams would tell you the same thing at this point, that there's not a financial stability problem. Mm-hmm. There's a, a new paper out that had presented at a New York Financial Stability Conference on Friday that posits the uh, the possibility of a something called our star star, our double star. <laughs> I read this, yeah. I, yeah, I was on uh, surveillance this morning, which is a nerd show, so you can talk about stuff like that there. And, um, <laughs> and they found it fascinating. The idea that there is a rate at which the markets then start to get into financial stability trouble because they had rates so low for so long. And I asked Mary Daly about that. And uh, her view was our star, the neutral rate for the Fed funds rate, uh, is something that is always there. It moves around, but it's always there. But the our star star part doesn't have to be there. It's not an endogenous thing. It's Mm. something that is a failure of regulation and therefore mm, uh, they don't have to t- they don't look at it the same way as they look at the uh, what is the neutral rate that's interesting here's a question for you if surveillance is nerdy does that make me and guy cool yeah you guys are so cool guy we like to hang huge. out you know it's huge. Can you not hear the snark? I honestly. No, I, no, I can hear the snark. <laughs> I, I can hear, I can hear it, and I see it. it it's a combination of yeah. the two things. Um, okay, talking about nerdy stuff, Mike. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. That was your R star and R star store. We already talked about oil. Let's get back to the airline sector. Uh, Willie Wash t- uh, talked with Guy Johnson uh, of IATA, of course. Um, earlier today, we're going to get more on what he said about the airline industry. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio, 40 minutes past the hour. I'm Guy Johnson in Amsterdam. I can still hear the music. Not entirely sure what's going on. But anyway, let's talk about why I'm in Amsterdam. I'm here for the World Aviation Festival. It took place today. I caught up with a whole bunch of CEOs from the aviation sector. I also caught up with Willie Walsh. He's, of course, the former CEO of British Airways uh, and of IAG. He's now the Director General uh, of IATA, the airline industry body. By nature, Willie is an optimistic man. But the challenges that are being faced at the moment by the aviation industry are huge. But he remains optimistic. I asked him about it and whether or not that optimism was justified. I wouldn't say super optimistic. I, I think there are enough pessimists out there. We need a bit right, of balance. Right, so use the counterweight to that. Yeah, side. yeah. And, and you know, to be honest, I, I can't see genuine reasons to be optimistic. You know, we, we still are in a recovery stage. Uh, it is a strong recovery, stronger than most people had expected. But there's still a long way to go, particularly on international travel, before we get back to where we are in 2019. And a lot of the trends we're seeing are very positive and give me reason to be optimistic. Europe is still hugely capacity constrained. We're just hearing from Marion Little there, the CEO of KLM, she's dealing with Schiphol, still capacity constrained and it now looks like the government's going to impose further restrictions as well. Other airports are suffering similar challenges, be it staffing, there are, there are a multitude of factors that are coming through together. Is Europe just going to grow more slowly now from an aviation point of view? Yeah, regrettably, I think it will. Uh, you know, capacity is not available in Europe uh, as it is in other parts of the world. I think the growth opportunity is there, but I think we are going to be constrained by capacity. And that will lead to you know, reduction in destinations served from Europe. It's going to lead to higher prices because you'll get an imbalance between the uh, demand and supply because I think demand will outstrip supply going forward. Uh, so it, it's going to be challenging. And uh, you know, when you see the measures being taken by uh, the government here in the Netherlands to restrict people, to be honest, I don't understand it. Uh, I'm not sure that they fully understood the implications that that would have for the operation of yeah. the hub at uh, Schiphol, but it's going to have major impact. Do you think other airports, other governments will follow suit? I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch. You know, I'm always optimistic that governments look at others and when they see them make mistakes, they, they don't make those yeah. mistakes. And in fact, some of the measures I'm seeing here, I'm surprised because if you go back in 2008, they introduced a ticket tax here in the Netherlands and uh, it surprised them that it didn't generate the revenues that they were expecting. And the reason it didn't generate the revenues is people still flew, but they didn't fly from the Netherlands. They drove across the border, they flew from uh, airports in Germany. And, and that's what's going to happen. You know, some of these decisions, I, I think, are being driven by a genuine desire to address the environmental challenge. But it's not actually going to make any difference because you're just going to transfer the problem from Schiphol to other airports around Europe who will be glad to take the, uh, you know, the business that Schiphol is turning away. Alex, it's going to be fascinating to watch how this whole story develops. Is Europe going to push the number of flights down and down aggressively? Is this just the start of things? It's interesting, Marion Rittle from KLM, for instance, used to run the Dutch railway system. And part of her challenge and part of the reason she's got the job is that she brings that skill set, that network of contacts mm -hmm. to the job at KLM. And her job almost is to fuse those two things together. So after talking to everyone today, and you led two panels, I think, right? What What yes. is the one outstanding question that you would have that you don't feel like you got a good answer to today? I don't think they're being honest about the demand that they're going to see through this winter. Because they I, don't I know it all, or they're just trying to be positive? I, I think it's probably a bit of both. I think they're just crossing their fingers and hoping for the best. Um, 
And I think they don't know what is going to happen. They also don't know, I think, when all this labour shortage story is going to get sorted out. I think they're hopeful that it's going to be at the beginning of next year. Mm -hmm. They don't know that. So we could be in a situation where this is still rumbling on into next summer. And they, 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 they have just have no visibility on all of these subjects. And I think that's massively challenging yeah. if you're trying to run an airline at the moment. Yeah, or, or all of a sudden you put a lot of money and time into getting it fixed and then demand drops off a cliff and then, and then where yep. you're at. Um, I feel like th- both sides, big risk. Um, anyway, it was really interesting. Uh, I loved hearing all about your conversations. There'll be more tomorrow too. And we'll hear guys' travels oh, yeah. as well. I mean, there'll be step-by-step getting into the airport and what that felt uh, like. That- that, that's assuming that I make it back, of course. That you could just be on your own tomorrow. This is 100% true. You could you could call in. You can call in from an airport bathroom. It'll be really fun. Okay, coming up, we're going to talk about the markets here with Pretty Gupta. She's joining us next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in Amsterdam. So, the market. We're getting a little bit heavy here. The Nasdaq's off by 1%. We are well off the lows of the session, though. The S&P is just down by six-tenths of 1%, but you're still looking at higher yields and a relatively stronger dollar uh, throughout the session. Let's get more on the market here. Kriti Gupta uh, joins us now from Bloomberg. So, Kriti, what is your biggest takeaway from the price moves over the last 72 hours? Like, I get the oversold bounce thing, and then we have today, yeah. but then we're off the lows. Like, what's a takeaway for you? You know, I don't feel like it's a fundamentally driven story at all, because if you look at what some of the market experts or gurus are saying, they're not necessarily saying we're at capitulation. They're not saying that this is the kind of Fed pivot that's feeding the rally. A lot of this really is a I mean, I hate to say it because this is such a cliche answer, but it's driven by sentiment, it's driven by technicals because nobody is here investing for the long term. And I think um, uh, John, I want to say, I want to make sure I say his name right, but Schofoltz, I think is how you say his name, over at Oppenheimer. Um, he does Sculpus. I'm so Stolfus. sorry. That's no, no, no. Please. You were talking to the right people about mispronouncing <laughs> stuff, okay? My, my, my mistake. Um, but anyways, yourself. He's, uh-huh. he's the chief investment strategist at Offenheimer Asset Management. And he just came out and said, look, uh, no one is is investing for the long term here. It's really a, a fight in the markets between the short-term traders that are quite literally trading the volatility of VIX at 29 that really isn't going anywhere close to 20 uh, right now, which is what you kind of need for a sustainable uh, bull market. But he's saying it's also a fight between the long-term investors, those um, kind of endowments, pension fund holders, mutual fund investors, who are saying, we're trying to call a bottom, but we're just not finding one. So where does that leave us? Where does, okay, more importantly, where do we go from here, Critty, in this kind of environment? Are we just going, is this, is this the narrative we're just going to have to live with as we continue to try and figure out where the Fed ultimately is going to take us? Well, it kind of seems like a lot of people are saying that it's going to be dependent on earnings. Mm-hmm. And, and although that is true to some extent, isn't the basis of the earnings story right now simply the fact that uh, growth is slowing down. Earnings are going to slow down. But we've been talking about that, I want to say, for a year now. So to me, the question is more, is it even priced in? And from a macro perspective, uh, perhaps it is. But I think this is where you start to look at your Apples, your Microsofts, your Amazons, your individual players and how they get repriced. And then I think it's kind of a sum of all parts that then moves the market as a whole, as opposed to people saying, OK, well, the dollar is stronger. Therefore, mm-hmm. we're going to sell equities. I think now the conversation is going to shift to, well, Apple is decelerating by 2%, hypothetically. I'm not saying that's the number, but whatever the number is, let's reprice it for Apple. And then whatever the weighting is, that reflects in your um, in your positioning for the S&P 500. To me, that seems like the approach that a lot of investors might take now that they're saying, well, okay, the Fed is priced in. 
Well, but to that point, and we were talking about this earlier on a macro basis with Mike, in terms of financial stability versus uh, the real economy, and trading the idea that at some point the Fed's going to have to pause, stop, whatever, because financial stability concerns are so bad. It, that's such a weird thing to trade, because if financial stability concerns are so bad, the reason why they're going to stop hiking is not great, but somehow you're going to trade that to the upside. Well, what's interesting about financial stability is we've kind of traded the verbiage here because we were talking about liquidity and now we're talking about financial stability. But if you look at the way the markets are pricing the uncertainty in, which seems to be the word, right? No one really knows what's going to happen in the next quarter, the next six months, uh, which makes it really challenging to price things in. Well, even as you price in a changing narrative, not a changing fundamentals, but a changing narrative, the market is still able to handle that. So yes, you have thin liquidity. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have a lack of participation, but nothing is breaking yet. And I think that's a positive sign for anyone who's trying to trade these markets short term. What are people saying about payrolls on Friday? They're saying we don't know how to interpret it again, which was the exact same conversation we had last yep. payrolls number. The idea that if you have a strong payrolls, is that a bad thing for the equity market or a mm -hmm. good thing? And I don't think we figured that out the last time either because we had this kind of knee-jerk uh, bounce uh, bounce back essentially on a strong payrolls number, but then it dropped on the actual figure. So uh, let's see what the trend is here, because if you start to have the same reaction twice, then that's starting to make a trend in terms of is good news good news or is good news bad news? Well, luckily, I won't be here on Friday to tackle this question. Kriti will be here instead, right? I think for me. Yes, she's that like, sounds what? familiar. Um, <laughs> she's like, maybe. Um, so, but, but to that exact point, Mike asked Mary Daly, like, what would be a, a number that she wants to see on Friday? And she said she wants to see a slower rate of job growth. So clearly not like a fall out of bed there, but a slower rate of job growth. But then you look at the ADP employment, it was still super solid over the last two months. It, it is. But I mean, look, those are still the private numbers, right? And I, I don't think, I mean, isn't it um, kind of known here that you can't go off payrolls uh, or you can't look at payrolls based off the ADP numbers. And the only reason I say that is because if you actually look at the jobs numbers and the breakdowns here, they're telling you three different things when you look at jobless claims versus looking at actual payrolls versus looking at ADP. Because if you look at jobless claims, well, those are slowly decelerating. So you would think that that is some sort of sign of a recession or whatever. In payrolls numbers, the trend has been that manufacturing is starting to slow down, but perhaps that doesn't matter as much because services is really where you want um, some of the slowdown. But then if you look at ADP, the numbers are actually really strong. So. Uh, this is not going to answer your question at all, but um, I didn't really need an answer. Yeah, you have you have you have three different narratives here, and I think this is what makes it so challenging to to trade and to position for the jobs number on Friday. And I can confirm, There's I no, am anchoring ten to twelve on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Just checked my calendar. Excellent. She's checked her email. Um, I'm looking forward to that. That'd be great. Looking yeah. forward to it. Um, uh, uh, is this just this is just a trader's market though? Do you think anybody's mm -hmm. doing any serious investing right now? No, I don't think so at all. Un unless you're looking at um, perhaps the commodity market. I think that's the one place where people are actually uh, perhaps driven more by the fundamentals than the sentiment. And I think a really good example of that was the fact that Brent crude on this OPEC decision, uh, which is supposed to be a huge one, is only up about 2%. So to me, that seems like the math is in there, the, the pricing is in there because uh, the commodities market is quite literally pricing in the fact that a lot of these OPEC countries haven't been meeting their quotas to begin with. So this kind of 2 million uh, uh, barrels per day uh, production cut number, well, it's actually, I think Bloomberg uh, Economic or Intelligence estimates actually 880,000 barrels per day mm -hmm. if you actually kind of adjust for the amount of quotas that aren't being met. So by that standard, I would say that it's 
the oil market, um, ironically, which used to be kind of this macro tourists market, um, that's the one that's got the message right at the moment. And ironically, that's kind of what the Saudis wanted to do to restore uh, predict a bit more predictability into the market and restore investor confidence to bring investors back into the oil market because liquidity was getting pretty tight. Um, yeah. Kriti, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. I know you got to run to TV. Uh, Kriti Gupta joining us from Bloomberg. Guy, I truly hope you have safe travels, no lines. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the play-by-play tomorrow. Have a good night, everybody. This has been The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.